Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 36. Last week, we read in John chapter 11 that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So we're reading from John chapter 12, starting from verse 12. If you have your Bible or an app open, please follow along. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Irony is defined as uh, the difference between the situation or the statement that we see or hear and what the reality is. So in other words, where there's a difference between the thing that you see and what is actually the case. Let me give you a couple of examples of irony. Uh, an escalator at a fitness center, that's fairly ironic. Um, hidden beach, which is now no longer hidden. 
uh, or the missing dog that's name is Lucky, another great example of uh, irony. But my personal favourite example, and you've probably already heard this one, uh, Barry Manilow uh, is the man who's best known for one song, and that is, I write the songs. Well, you guessed it, Barry Manilow didn't write that song. That's the perfect example of irony. Well, today we're looking at John chapter 12, and here is a passage that is full of irony, a passage where things are not what they appear to be. When we open up to John 12, we've reached the turning point in John's gospel. Each of the gospel writers devotes a significant amount of time to the last week in the life of Jesus, that week before he goes to the cross. But John takes the prize because he devotes almost half of his gospel to that last week of Jesus' life. And those opening words of chapter 12 put us right inside that last week. But let's have a look at the ironies that we see in here. The first irony involves Mary and an expensive jar of perfume. Jesus has arrived in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem and they're throwing a dinner party in his honour. And we're told that Lazarus is there. Now, that's not an insignificant detail in this story. In the previous chapter, we saw that Jesus has raised Lazarus to life, brought him back from the dead, performed a most incredible miracle. And the idea of raising him from the dead is what lingers on in the background here in this chapter. Lazarus is at the dinner, but it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that becomes apparent as we look through these situations. And while they're sitting at the table, Mary comes with a jar of, we're told, expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. It's an extraordinary act of devotion on her part. And we're told that the perfume was probably worth a year's wages. Now, the cynical male mind of mine says, well, that couldn't be right. You couldn't have a bottle of perfume that's, that's worth a year's wages. But there is perfume around today that is worth that much. Uh, The most expensive perfume in the world today uh, is Clive Christian's number one. And it sells for about $3,500 an ounce. That means that a bottle the size of the one that Mary poured on Jesus' feet would be worth something in the order of $70,000. Now, Judas wants to question Mary's wisdom in doing this, but Jesus points out that things aren't exactly what they seem. And look at what it says there, chapter 12, verse 7. Jesus says, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What Jesus is saying is, Leave her alone. She's just getting a head start on embalming my body. Mary thinks that this is a beautiful gesture and no doubt Jesus agrees but he also recognises that it's foreshadowing his death. Now, the second irony that we read about also involves this bottle of perfume. Uh, Judas wants the money put into the purse to be given to the poor but the irony is Judas has no concern for the poor. Judas has been the treasurer for the disciples. He's been the one who's carried the money bag around for the disciples, but he's kind of had his hand in the till. And another great irony is that that Judas is the one who's just about to sell Jesus out, and that for just a few silver coins. Judas has no concern for the poor. He's really only concerned for himself. 
Well, the third irony comes as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has been growing in popularity and, and Lazarus, having come back from the dead, well, that's got everybody's attention and they're starting to see just how significant Jesus is. So when he arrives in Jerusalem, there are crowds of people there spreading out palm branches on the ground and proclaiming Jesus as the king. But the mode of transport that Jesus has chosen has probably got everyone guessing. He rides into town on a donkey. Now we're told that the disciples didn't really understand this and let's face it, it must have looked very odd, a full-grown man sitting on a small donkey and making his way into town. If you were there with Jesus, if you were among the disciples and you were given the responsibility of arranging Jesus' transport to ride into Jerusalem on that day, what would you have picked? Would you have gone for something like a royal carriage or maybe something that looked a little bit more like the Pope Mobile, or maybe a rugged Hummer to show how powerful Jesus is or maybe something impressive like a limo? But that's not the mode of transport Jesus chooses. He chooses this. The irony is it may have looked really strange, but Jesus is making a profound statement. He is the king that God had promised to send. And the prophet Zechariah said that that king would come, that that king would bring salvation, but he would ride into town on a donkey. Well, in the midst of all of this, there's a very strange incident that happens. If you jump down to verse number 20, uh, Jesus has just made this incredible entrance into town. He's been proclaimed as the king. Palm leaves are being spread out on the ground. People are yelling and singing. And then we read this in verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now, it's not the fact that there are a couple of Greek guys there wanting to meet with Jesus. That's not the surprising thing. The surprising thing is Jesus' response to this because look at what the next verse says. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All the way through John's Gospel, we've been hearing about the hour, the hour, the end point of Jesus' ministry. The hour, which is why Jesus has come. And the arrival of these Greeks has triggered Jesus to say, that's it. The hour has now come. It's now time to do what I have come to do. Just a couple of Greek guys wanting to meet Jesus, but it seems as though this is the trigger for the climax of Jesus' ministry. And look at what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now let me join the dots for you here. Jesus says the hour has come for him to be glorified and the glory for Jesus will come through him dying on the cross. There will be great fruit that will result from the death of Jesus. 
Back in the Old Testament, it talks about all of the nations ultimately coming to God. And Jesus knows that his death will be the beginning of those nations coming in and being a part of God's kingdom. Just as Mary had got a head start on Jesus' burial, well, it seems as though the Greeks have got a head start on joining God's kingdom. Those nations from outside that will become part of what God has planned. That one seed, Jesus dying and rising again, is going to bear an incredible amount of fruit. There will be people from every nation, every tongue, who will become part of God's people through Jesus. Well, that brings us to the final irony. If you were to ask the question of John's Gospel, where is God's glory revealed? Well, the answer is very clearly in the death of Jesus on the cross. And that's got to be the greatest irony of all. What appears to be a defeat, what appears to be a complete disaster, what appears to be a failure, what appears as an example of weakness is in fact the place where we most clearly see God's glory revealed. We see God's glory because it's in the cross that we see God's love. It's in the cross that we see God's justice. It's in the cross that we see God dealing with our sin. We see God making it possible for us to know him. But in the middle of all of these ironies, there's one thing, sadly, that remains a constant, and that's the refusal of the Pharisees to believe in Jesus. I think this is a very sad part of the passage. Jump back up to John chapter 12 and find verse number 9. It says this, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and had, and, and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. On account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The resurrection of Lazarus has been enough to cause some people to believe. It's made them realise who Jesus is and they are in awe of what's happened. But not the Pharisees. Their response to Lazarus being raised from the dead, they've put him on the hit list as well. Not only do they want Jesus dead, they also want to kill Lazarus as well. I suppose that's something that we need to keep remembering, that People will respond to the message about Jesus in a whole variety of ways. There'll be people who do believe in him, but we shouldn't be surprised when there are people who are vehemently opposed to Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised when there are people like Richard Dawkins, who wants to denounce Christianity and calls the whole thing a God delusion. Dawkins says it's time for us to get rid of religion. It has no place in our world that reason has now triumphed. Science tells us everything that we need to know. But in a way, nothing has changed. The Apostle Paul encountered the rich and Dawkinses of his day back in the first century. Listen to what it says in, in 1 Corinthians. This is right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 22. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth in Greece and says... Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When Paul was preaching about Jesus, he says that there were Jews who were demanding signs and Greeks who were demanding wisdom. He had the first century Richard Dawkins in his ear saying, what is all of this nonsense that you're talking about? Where's the wisdom in here, Paul? So according to Dawkins, we don't need religion, we don't need God, we don't need Jesus. And in the face of reason, the message of the cross, well, it kind of does look crazy. It does look like foolishness. So let's not be surprised by people who respond that way to Jesus. But let's keep praying for people to be able to see and believe who Jesus is. Now this chapter of John covers a whole lot of territory, but let me finish with an encouragement and a challenge. First, the challenge. It's only a small thing in the context of the passage, but have a look at what we read in verse 42 and 43. It says this, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. There were those among the leadership in Israel who were compelled to believe in Jesus. They saw who he was. They saw what he was doing. But it seems that they weren't willing to stand up in public for Jesus. They kind of caved to the pressure. They kept their faith a secret for fear that of what others would think of them or for fear of what others would do to them. Did you see how John describes it? For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And that can be the challenge for us. I bet there have even times when you've acted that way, when you've kept quiet for fear of what people might think about your faith. But what we need to do is to keep saying to ourselves, I'm more interested in the praise of God than the praise of men and women. But here's the challenge. Let me finish with this encouragement. One thing becomes increasingly obvious as you look through John's Gospel, and that is that the cross of Jesus is the focus. And it's not just the focus for entering into the Christian life, it's the ongoing example of the Christian life. The death of Jesus is where God's glory is revealed, and it's where God's glory continues to be revealed. Go back to John chapter 12 and find verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is glorified in the cross. And if we want people to see God's glory, then we need to point them to the cross. But when it comes to your Christian life and what that should look like, well, you need to look to the cross. 
Jesus goes on to say this in the very next verse, verse 25. Anyone who loves his life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. They're pretty confronting words, aren't they? But when it comes to how it is that we live as Christians, it keeps coming back to the cross. Jesus gave his life so that we could have eternal life. And the only logical way to respond to that is for us to give our life to Jesus, to live our life for him. 